back to the Lake to Lake podcast, the official podcast of your Niagara Daily Newspapers. I'm your host, Grant LaFleche. A little over a year ago, 19-year-old Sam Oosterhof shocked Ontario's political world by becoming the youngest person ever to be elected as a member of the provincial parliament. In securing the nomination for the Progressive Conservative Party in the riding of Niagara West Glanbrook, Oosterhof defeated established Tory politicians, including party president and former St. Catharines MP Rick Dykstra, and former party regional vice president and Grimsby regional councillor Tony Quirk. When his tenure began at Queen's Park, Oosterhof gave few interviews to reporters, even while he faced intense scrutiny over his unabashedly religiously fueled social conservative views that conflicted with the more progressive direction party leader Patrick Brown was taking the Tories. Now, a year into his first term in office, Oosterhof is finding his footing. He's been working on several key issues of the day, including the opioid crisis and hospice care. And Oosterhof is becoming more vocal and, for the first time, sat down with the St. Catherine Standard for an interview. I sat down with Oosterhof last week at his Grimsby constituency office, the day after his one-year anniversary, for a lengthy discussion about his life as Ontario's youngest MPP. In the wide-ranging interview you are about to hear, we talked about millennials in politics, why he chose to run for office in the first place, how he balances his education and being an MPP, how his religious views intersect with party politics, and his first private member's bill. Before we dive into the interview, however, I just want to make a few housekeeping notes about the Lake to Lake podcast. Our first season of Lake to Lake consisted of 35 episodes and ended roughly a year ago. As we dealt with significant staffing changes at Niagara's daily newspapers, the planned second season was put on hold while we adjusted to our new environment. So I'm pleased to say today that the Lake to Lake podcast will be returning for a second season in 2018 with a new format and a new focus, and we'll be sharing details about that with you early in the new year. I should also point out that this interview with Sam Oosterhof is the first of four sit-down interviews we are doing with all of Niagara's MPPs before the 2000 election, 2018 election season really gets underway. So stay tuned for the interviews with Liberal MPP Jim Bradley and NDP MPPs Cindy Forrester and Wayne Gates, which will be coming soon. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Progressive Conservative MPP for Niagara West Glanbrook, Sam Oosterhof. So, um, year yesterday is your anniversary. So just first blush, how does it feel? What is different today than it was 12 months ago when you first took office? Mm -hmm. Well, it's been an incredible experience. I've got to say, uh, being able to, to work for my constituents, being able to work for the community here in, here in Niagara West Glanbrook and being able to bring uh, their concerns forward. I think one of the things that has changed is uh, being able to work with people from a wide variety of areas within the riding and also from outside of the riding, being able to see that uh, working with, uh, whether it's Jim Bradley or Wayne Gates or or, uh, or Cindy Forrester on, on issues that uh, matter to all, in, all Niagarans, being able to really bring a strong voice from Niagara to Queen's Park and address uh, some of those uh, more localized regional issues is something that uh, I, I've really had the opportunity to work with my, my colleagues on. And that's been an incredible opportunity. I've got to say it's it's been a huge learning experience being able to learn from 
the big fills that I had to fill with Tim Hudak leaving and uh, being able to work with people in in the caucus who are absolute giants. I think of Lori Scott with her work on anti-human sex trafficking. Uh, I think of Lisa McLeod who came down for a tour on mental health and the opioid crisis in the Niagara region. And being able to see how varied and how um, caring the constituents of Niagara West Glanbrook are and how many issues uh, they're so passionate about and being able to fight for those issues every day in and out for the last year has has been the best experience of my life so how, how long did that how long did it take you to sort of get ahead of steam because there was the big splash when you were first elected all the talk of you being the youngest MPP in, in Ontario history and then you were very quiet for several months and then it seems more recently, I mean, you had your own town hall on the opiate crisis. You've had um, your, your profiles getting more attention, which, which looks from the outside anyway, as you becoming more active as you sort of find your political feet. Mm -hmm. So what was that learning curve like for you uh, to go into the uh, legislature for the first time versus where you're at now, where you do seem to be somewhat more active and, and, and more public in terms of what you do every day? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it... Uh I, I had worked, as I've said before, on Parliament Hill for a year before I was elected. Uh, so I worked as a legislative and uh, a legislative uh, assistant and policy analyst. So I did have an idea of what the policy system looked like. But I think it, there was still um, a certain amount of time that it took to to hit the ground running and and get to uh, really get the f the sense of what people in the ridings expected uh, of of my representation, what they expected of me uh, fighting for at Queens Park, whether that's Lower hydro rates, or or their concerns about uh, about you know infrastructure investments or, or healthcare. Being able to see that um, they have particular perspectives on a wide variety of issues, and that it was important for me to listen to them. The first few months, I still did a lot of door knocking. I still did a lot of consultations and events, but at the same time, I, I did want to keep a lower uh, profile because I wanted to make sure that I was laying the framework and laying the ground game that that would uh, enable me to be an effective representative for my constituents and to put them first and foremost. So I, I don't think it's that I'm doing more now than I was then. I've been incredibly busy and, and mm -hmm. working very hard ever since I was elected. Uh, but I think there there was an initial, um, yeah, you mentioned that, that, that burst of exposure. And after that, people were kind of like, okay, we're sick of talking about what's going on with, with this guy. Uh, which I was okay with. It, it enabled me to, to get some things done sort of behind the scenes and, and to be able to build those relationships and to make those networks that, that are necessary to actually be effective in, in, uh, in the political right. realm. Uh, but it was also something that uh, perhaps uh, made it seem as if I was I was taking a bit more of a, a backseat, which I am a backbencher, so I have no problem yeah. doing. <laughs> um, let's go back. I mean, I, and I, I want to talk about some of the things that's happened since you were elected, but I think this is the, one of the questions that people have had since you ran. When the riding was up for grabs after Mr. Hudak decided he was done, there were two names that everybody kept talking about that were the likely successors once people knew they were interested. Rick Dykstra, former MP in the Harper government representing St. Catharines, and Tony Cork, uh, who is an established regional councillor. Uh, there were, of course, a couple of other players, and then there's Sam Oosterhoff. 19-year-old kid, nobody knows who he is outside of his own kind of circle. When you, we'll start here, why did you choose to run now when, and I think in a column I, I, I sort of tongue kind of half-planted-in-cheek talked about this though, most 19-year-olds 
aren't thinking about, even if they're deeply interested in politics, aren't willing to take that jump yet. There's this idea that I need more real world experience. I'm not ready yet. I'm too young. I've got to go. It's hair though. The, yeah. Yeah. You got better hair when you're 19. That's for sure. But what was it for you at 19 that you decided, no, I want to be involved now. I'm not going to wait till I'm 25. I'm not going to wait till I'm 30. I'm not going to wait till I have a, a degree in a career in business somewhere. I need to get involved right now. Mm-hmm. Well, there were, there are a couple big things. And one of the the main reasons is because now is such a pivotal time in Ontario's history. Uh, now is such a pivotal time for the conservative movement. Uh, and really, it's an important time for Niagara. I think we're seeing um, incredible amount of growth in the Niagara region. Uh, and we need to be able to have people on the forefront who are capitalizing on that. But one of the big things for me is, uh, I said this during the nomination time and time again and since the campaign, I believe in democracy uh, because I believe in government by the people for the people. And that means having a voice uh, from the people. And one of the reasons, the biggest reason I ran during the first nomination uh, was I'm, I've seen the impact of Kathleen Wynne's uh, policies on, on youth, on seniors, on families, on students, on everyone in between. Uh, and I saw that, uh, unfortunately, the, the and I, again, I don't want to rehash this too much because it's a year ago, right? Yeah. But those who did put their names forward, the names that you mentioned for that uh, nomination, they were not working hard. They were uh, bringing... Uh, you know, I, I want to be so careful with this because I don't want it to make it sound as if I'm better than them. But I, I felt it was important to get out there, knock doors, talk to people. Well, yeah, and, and that I, mattered to them. I mean, and that's that, why I ran. Yeah, I door knocked fifteen thousand doors. During, well, and, and that right? was funny because everybody I talked to after the the, the nomination vote was settled and you had won. Uh, when I talked to all the other candidates, again, some of whom were very established politicians, also kind of said the same thing about you that your ground game was excellent, that you did not take for granted the uh, importance of having, going out and getting support, mobilizing your own personal community to support Mm -hmm. you and have them reach out to other people as well. Um, Were there any particular, was there any particular advice or lessons you had learned prior to doing that, that you, you knew I have to bust my hump and make sure I'm in front of people constantly during Mm -hmm. this process? Yes. So um, I talked to Tim Hudak about it. Uh, and Tim was very supportive. He was young when he was elected. He was 27, which was young or at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he, he told me very simply, uh, it, it, it's a game where you need to make sure you're connecting with people, you're selling memberships to people, getting them out to support, and they need to believe in you. And that comes down to hard work. He said uh, nothing, you know, endor- he, t- he, he in fact told me, endorsements don't matter, only door knocking and getting your message out matter, right? So don't worry about big names. At the end of the day, if you're connecting with people and convincing them to come out and support a vision of a better Ontario that, you're, that, you, that you believe in, um, he, he supported that and gave me good advice along that way. So uh, really, the, the biggest impetus, it, a couple of things, I, I think it's so important to have someone who's um, very connected to the riding, and I born and raised mm-hmm. here, lived here my whole life, and, and I'm always out there door knocking. Tomorrow I have a group of people going out door knocking. Grimsby, I was out door knocking in Smithville last weekend. I, I make sure that I stay connected, um, and that's the type of work ethic I think can can be effective in bringing change that works for Niagara families. Were you at all, was there any trepidation on your part when it was, oh man, I'm going head-to-head with Rick Dykstra, who at one point, you know, he was the St. Catharines MP, he did have a national profile, he often spoke for the federal party on, on issues for the national press, never mind uh, constantly appearing in the local press. Uh, it, was there any thought that 
this might be just the bridge too far at this point. No, because I believe again, I don't want to like I don't want to relive you know too much the the nomination room of twenty sixteen. Yeah, but I believe very firmly, and I had people. This wasn't something that I I personally considered. I had. Um, constituents and, and friends and families coming to me and saying, have you have you considered running to Mudax stepping down? Have you thought about this process? And initially I, I looked to see if there was someone else who would be willing to mm-hmm. step into the gap. And, and I made some calls actually myself to various, some board members and some community activists and leaders saying, have you thought about running? No one was willing to take up the challenge. Um, and with, with all respect to Rick, I think he's doing a great job as, as party president, uh, but uh, he didn't live in the riding. And uh, I, I knew I could, uh, I could work twice as hard as the next guy and uh, at least give, give them a run for their money. This was, even if I didn't win, I didn't get into this knowing I would win, yeah. to put it that way. I knew it was possible to win, but I didn't expect to win. But I thought it was important to have a voice mm-hmm. for um, your Aunt Susie on the door, who doesn't know too much about politics, but when I come and knock her door, she gets excited and she comes out and votes for the first mm-hmm. time in a political process. Right, that that type of person getting out there. I, I hit fifteen thousand doors, and that was what made the difference. How many pairs of shoes did you go through? Uh, just one. Just one. <laughs> just one. But I did go through actually, and then another one shortly afterwards. Right. But, uh, I have gone through actually a couple pairs of shoes since I got elected. Where does Sam Oosterhof's interest in politics come from? I think back to myself when I was your age. I was still in university. I was taking political studies at Bishop's University at the time. I was also a varsity football player. So I had a deep interest in politics. I was studying it. But again, (coughs) certainly would never have said, oh, I should run for office. I'm just curious, and I think a lot of people are curious, where does your, because you're obviously passionate about what you do. Mm -hmm. Where does the interest in politics come from? Uh, What was it that sort of made you uh, so focused on this at such a young Mm -hmm. age that you wanted to see if you could get elected? So... I can sort of give a, a broader, uh, the underpinnings, I'll express the underpinnings sure, of why I'm doing you. this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll speak to a specific example that really led to my um, involvement at a young age watching. So first of all, I, I'm from a big family. Uh, we listen to you know, CBC the, the, we, at six every evening around the dinner table and talk right. about current affairs, what's going on, you know, the half hour of the world at six type of thing. Having a good conversation about what's going on in the world from a young age, I was already uh, an avid reader, so having the opportunity to uh, to. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, this is uh, Bob Tomsichin, sandwich. Bob, yeah, good to see you again. Yeah. I was just wondering if you were supposed to be here. And I was <laughs> like, oh, he's very comfortable. <laughs> just walked right in. That's what uh, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so from a very young age, uh, I, I saw the impact of overbearing government. Quite honestly, my f- grandparents came across from the Netherlands in the fifties. Uh, they immigrated here because uh, their hometown was liberated by the Canadian Armed Forces during the Second World War. Um, and I grew up hearing about what life under the uh, Iron Curtain was like, what it was like in, in communist uh, Russia, what life was like under Nazi Germany. And I saw the impact that um, oppressive dictatorships can have on government. Mm-hmm. And I thought, we live in such a beautiful country where people have the opportunity to have their voice, to express their concern, to run for office themselves. And so many people, quite frankly, throw it away. They're not as involved as they could be. They may complain without getting involved and being willing to do something about it. And I always thought, it doesn't seem right to sit there and be 
you know, whining about what's going on in the world if I'm not willing to get out there and, and try and make a difference. And I, I didn't think at that time when I was you yeah. know, 14, 15 that I would be elected at, that, at this age. So um, what happened is I, I began to read avidly uh, from everything from, uh, you know, Malcolm X to, to, to Hobbes and Burke. And I mean, I've, I've pretty much run the gamut of Cicero, Homer, you, you name it, I've read it type of thing. <laughs> and I don't mean that to, to sound, uh, I, I don't wish to sound ostentatious. I just, I just really admired... Um, these thinkers who have gone on before. So is, is there comes, one? Is there one of those thinkers that jumps out at you, or that you would still turn to now, uh, when you when you do your job in Toronto? Particularly, I would have to say not you know one particular. I would say there is a person, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce uh, was elected at 21 years old, with 21 years of age. He was told that he wouldn't be able to be effective because he was too young. He ended up abolishing the slave trade despite the huge social, economic, and sort of cultural uh, weight that that the slave trade carried in the in the British Imperial um, Empire at that time. So he's sort of one of those people that has always inspired me, as well as Winston Churchill, who who obviously just his tenacity and magnanimity in in First World War, Lord of the Admiralty, Second World War, British Prime Minister loses and then comes back in 1951 as the British Prime Minister all over again, and always because he believed in in the importance of 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 the British people and, and of serving the British people. So those are a couple role models, but the really, uh, the event that really made me, that sticks out in my mind, um, being very, very honest mm -hmm. here is there was a, a situation in Quebec called the Loyola court decision. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but mm -hmm. the Loyola decision was uh, a private, uh, Catholic school did not receive any government funds. And it was told that it had to teach from a religiously neutral perspective. Now, uh, you know as well as I do that I'm a person of faith, and for me it was concerning to see that um, a government had the power to tell a religiously-oriented school in a country that believes and promotes freedom of expression, freedom of religion, that they were unable to teach from that perspective. So when it went through the whole court process, it went, you know, it was challenged, it went to the Superior, Ontario Superior Court, and then it went to the Supreme Court, and the, the school won in the end. The Supreme Court validated their, their perspective. But again, I was only probably 14, 15 at the time. This was probably 2010 or something like that. But I remember that clicked in my head where I, I remember feeling that it was concerning that a government had the amount of power that it could try control people's consciences. And I knew then and there that the power of overbearing government um, could be could be a terrifying thing. I guess on that, did you see the recent decision this week about the language decision out of Quebec, where they've now passed a law at the provincial uh, the house that you have to, as a store owner, say bonjour hi, so instead of bonjour hi. Yeah, you have to say you have to use only French. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into a fight with my Quebec colleagues, but at the same time, I mean, come on. <laughs> Listen, it's it's a greeting. I mean, yes. I say bonjour all the time, and I live in Ontario. Yeah. Actually, I'm taking French lessons. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I did my first first French interview on Saturday at the convention. Oh, how did it go? Good. Yeah. Good. I mean, I got I, it's on TVO or whatever. Yeah. So, are you fluent now, or flu it's fluent enough? I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I take uh, four hours a week, so two two wow. two hour lessons. So, it it picks up pretty pretty quickly. I kind of want to ask you about what your your week is like, and we'll go back to some of the things you just said about. Um, that, that case that kind of sparked your, your real political passion. But one of the things that I've noted at the last election season, so both the 
at the municipal election, provincial election, federal election. Voter turnout in Niagara is very low. I think it was the last provincial election was or last municipal election rather was thirty seven percent. And your your point earlier about how we have the rare opportunity in Canada to participate and have your voices heard and even be part of the wheels of government, and most people throw it away. What do you say to your demographic cohort, other 19, 20, 21 year olds um, who may not be as interested in politics as you are and aren't as passionate about it as you are, and say, no, listen, you have to be involved. However you get, you have to be involved. How do you make that case to people your demographics, which rightly Everywhere. or wrongly, is usually thought of as disengaged yeah, from great, the political great process. Question. Um, so first of all, I'm the PC Caucus Youth Liaison of all things, so I, I don't know why they put me there. I no, have I'm no just, idea. Uh, so I, I actually, I do a lot of traveling to uh, campus clubs across the province, just on Thursday, today's Friday. Wednesday night, I was in Ottawa. I was speaking at uh, U Ottawa and Camp Carleton Campus Conservatives. I was in Western a couple weeks ago, UW the week before that. Like I'm doing a, I do a lot of visits to campuses. And everywhere I go, I get similar question, right? So why should youth be involved? And why does it matter? And the reason is because our future is the one at stake. Um, if you look at our legislatures, if you look at our parliaments, we have a lot of people um, with a lot of experience, mature people, which is good. And, and I wouldn't want to have a legislature full of 19-year-olds. I'll put it that way. <laughs> you know, if, if, if the entire legislature was made up of 19-year-olds, I don't think that would be the best idea. But um, having that diversity and perspective around the table is good. But we're the ones who are going to have to pay off our $300 billion of debt. We're the ones who are uh, graduating with university degrees that don't get us jobs. We're the ones who have to worry about paying $1,200 a month for rent in a in a little duplex. We're the ones who can't afford home ownership till we're in our late 30s. Uh, we're the ones who are being impacted by liberal policies and we're the ones who are going to have to pay for that. So until we wake up and start realizing that whether it's, whether it's um, hydro prices or housing prices or uh, you know, half of grade sixers failed their math, uh, math courses in the EQA tests last year, or earlier this year, um, that's having an impact on our quality of life. That's having an impact on our future. And it's nice to think that, you know, progressive politics is, is, is the best thing under the sun, but unless it actually works, well, unfortunately, I, I don't think it's going to be beneficial. So what I try to do is what, everywhere I go, I talk to people about the fact that we're paying $12 billion a year just on interest payments on our provincial debt. We have we're graduating thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people for jobs that don't exist and we're not graduating them with degrees for the jobs that do. We have uh, people who are having being forced to live in their parents' basements into their 30s because of the cost of housing. And just talking about those practical issues that, that we say we should be getting involved because we need to improve our future. So. Is it difficult, and uh, you know, there's that old expression, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Uh, that sometimes when you are, you know, just getting out of your teenage years, just becoming an adult, that it's hard to project that far in the future. You know, a lot of 19, uh, certainly I didn't, when you're that young, think, oh, 
you know, what am I going to do when I'm 35? Will I be able to afford a house when I'm 40? Mm-hmm. Those t- don't tend to be questions that people of your age often ask. So when you make those arguments, how receptive are they? Do you kind of have to drag them along or are they, are they getting it when you're saying, look, you have, a, you have a long-term stake in this, that if you're not involved now, someone else is going to make that choice for you? Mm-hmm. Often uh, people, I would say almost all people respond positively to that. It makes sense but it still can become difficult to make that very practical, right? So they're like, yeah, yeah, I should get involved. Uh, it's something I should probably do, but what does that actually look like, right? And I, and I give advice to 18-year-old NDP candidates who want to run in Oshawa and think I'm, uh, and, and I'm an inspiration. I've helped liberal candidates who want to run in Richmond Hill, you know, um, not candidates, but kid, younger mm-hmm. people who want to run for these, not because for me it's, it's, it's important that we have young people recognizing, even if they disagree with their, their philosophical orientation, um, that they need to have a voice around the table. And they, they do get that, but they really struggle. Young people really struggle with the practicality. So what does that look like? Two years ago, right? First campaign, 2015 federal election. My first job was writing on sticky notes, saying, sorry, I missed you mm-hmm. on a sticky note, right? So that we could put it on the campaign literature. Two years later, or a year, a year and a few months later, I, I'm, I was sitting in the provincial legislature, right? That has to be surreal. That has to be a little bit surreal. Yeah. To go yeah. from, I'm, I'm a gopher on a campaign, that my job today is to say, sorry we missed you when you weren't at the door, yeah. and now you're able to vote on issues that impact the entire province. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been an incredible uh, humbling and... and um, just a huge privilege. It's been a humbling experience and a huge privilege for sure. Yeah. You have just on the, uh, on the issue of votes in the house, you've come into criticism for two votes in particular for which you did not attend. Uh, that was the first one right after you were uh, elected, which was bill uh, 28, which if, if I'm correct, you later said, had you voted, you would have voted against it. Uh, most recently there was the uh, legis- legislation to limit uh protests around abortion clinics, and, and you, you were absent for that vote as well. And the criticism is you are from a more socially conservative riding. You have a very strong socially conservative uh, base, not just from your church, but for many people in this community, and that you're really in a rock and a hard place on some of these social issues because if you vote with your party for those legislation, you may not be representing the views of your constituents, but if you vote against them, you're voting against your own party and your own leader. So... Talk to me a little bit about how, why you weren't there for those votes, and if in fact this is something that you have to navigate, representing your constituents versus maybe, and maybe this is something all politicians have to face, maybe the the will of their party or the will of their party leader who's taking a position that is maybe not yours. Good question. So, going back a year ago, I my niece was just born. Right. hadn't been sworn in yet. That's you know that's all done and over with. Uh, the recent one. Uh, I was at a, I was at a uh, event here in the riding touring uh, the uh, John Deere facilities just down the road in Grimsby, um, but look with regards to that vote, uh, I believe, and I, as I, I believe every Ontarian would agree, we should condemn harassment, and we should rightly um, call out abuse, verbal abuse as well. Um, but there is still an important place 
to make sure, oh, it's still important to make sure there is a place for dialogue and that there is the opportunity for freedom of expression and, and freedom of speech surrounding even controversial issues. Do you know how you would have voted right. if you'd been in the House that day? I wasn't there, so I, 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 I can't speak right. to that. But I do know that uh, I have I have concerns with um, particular uh, potential infringement on the ability to express yourself, uh, because I think that is something that's important. But at the same time, it's it's a balancing act mm-hmm. because I I, I, I I completely condemn harassment mm-hmm. and, and abuse. Um, but I think you're right. It is a struggle sometimes to uh, to be discerning in how you approach issues that are um, deeply held by different people from a variety of perspectives, right? I mean, every writing has, whether or not it's represented by a liberal or a conservative, I mean, it's, it's always going to have people who have different perspectives on different issues. And speaking to those issues from uh, a place of... Uh, informed discussion with constituents as well as from uh, your personal perspectives and convictions. It's something that uh, does take a lot of thought and a lot of um, a lot of uh, consideration. How do you navigate that if if the party because the party the party voted on for Bill 28, the, the first one that you were not present for, and they voted for the limits on where people can protest for abortion clinics. If, if those sorts of um, bills are against either your own personal convictions or you find that they're against the convictions of the constituents you represent, how, how do you navigate that? How do you say to the party or the party leader, look, I can't stand with you on this? Um, because, I mean, I think that's the question people have because certainly Patrick Brown has moved the party in a somewhat more centrist position on some issues uh, that past leaders maybe had not. And uh, it, it just seems sometimes you are occupying a space that puts you in conflict with, some, not all of them, clearly, but some of those positions that the party has taken are maybe not the ones that, not the position you would take. Mm-hmm. So how do you find your way through that? Well, I think every party has um, a, a broad variety of perspectives on on issues of conscience, right? Uh, I'm... I know within the Liberal Party there have, there are those who are social conservatives. Uh, within the I know members not of the legislature, but I know active NDP um, members who are are socially conservative. Uh, and I think that it's something that occurs in every party where there is a struggle. But it's always uh, it, it's something that on a case by case basis, I think you have to take that into consideration. It's very difficult to say what bills will look like until they come up, what situations will come up. Uh, but I've been always clear that I'm that I'm pro-life. I've been uh, open about that, and and that's uh, something that whether or not you agree or disagree with me, it's um, it's an issue I've I've been straight up about. So having those conversations with either uh, caucus or the leader's office, it, they are um, they are ones that I think we need to ensure there's there's room for dissent on some issues because democracy flourishes when people can have uh, discussions around issues of conscience, around issues of, of uh, deeply held belief. But at the same time, uh, Patrick's been very clear about the direction he's, he's taking the party, uh, and, uh, and he's been very uh, upfront about that. What's your relationship like uh, with him? Good. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. He, he was elected young. 
Uh, he was only 22, I believe, when he was elected. So to, not much older than you. No, but he was elected to uh, council, Barry, and then he was elected at like 27 or 8 to federal parliament. 27 or 8, I can't yeah, remember yeah. exactly. So he uh, understands the, the importance of... Uh, of working hard and he understands some of the struggles that there can be uh, uh, so he's he's been uh, actually a huge support I've, I've had a lot of good conversations with him and he's uh, he's an incredibly hard-working and compassionate person uh, and he's someone who really really believes he believes in in the goodness of Ontario and and the people of Ontario and that comes through in everything he does he's he's, he's a man of compassion right uh, and and I have a lot of respect for him what does the week what is a week in San Wisterhoff's life look like and when you so when you were first elected uh i think you had said you intended to continue on with your studies at brock and do your duties as an mpp uh i don't know how you manage that that's a, a university caseload even for a bachelor's degree is is a lot obviously working <coughs> as a member of the provincial parliament is a huge task so how where have you struck the balance there what does a week look like you mentioned earlier you take four hours of uh, french instruction a week um, what, what, how many things are you juggling at this point, uh, in your career? Quite a few. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing one course on Tuesday nights right now at Brock, uh, economics and political science. So I did two, this, two courses this summer, one this fall, another one this winter. I'll do another one next spring, another two next summer. Just kind of plug away at it, right? It's my, my first and foremost responsibilities to my constituents and they come, um, they come first and foremost. And I, uh, whenever there is a conflict that, that comes up, my, my constituents come first. But it has an impact on my grades. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound, <laughs> that sounds so cocky, right? So don't, don't put that in there, but, like, but it hasn't. Uh, because it's, 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 it's not like I'm doing a full course load, but it's something where I don't know if I want to do politics forever, right? I love serving, I love being able to help constituents, I love being able to speak to these really important issues that impact the lives of Ontarians. Uh, but there's always a life outside of politics and maintaining a balance and looking at what that would look like down the road if, if, if um, they see fit to not return me to the legislature in the spring. Uh, it's important to always have a backup plan too, right? So my week, okay, it's, this, is, this is the difficult thing about the life of an elected official is no week is the same. No day is the same, right? I can have, in the morning I'll have a meeting with healthcare professionals and then I'll go to question period and then I'll have a meeting with education professionals and then I'll go give a speech on uh, uh, human trafficking and then I'll have another meeting with the pork producers and then I'll have uh, you know a, a dinner meeting with another organi organization so every day is so varied and the issues are so broad, it's kind of like the life of a reporter, I would argue, right? Like, you don't know what they... What That's you're true. Gonna be, you don't yeah. know what you're going to be talking about or who you're going to be interviewing two weeks down the road. I have a general schedule, but every week is so different. But it's always amazing. We're heading into, by the time um, our readers read the, read this interview and, and, and listen to it, um, we're going to be very close to entering 2018, which is an election year and everything's going to change, gets more frantic, uh, politics gets more intense, it gets sharper. When you look at the last couple of elections, and, and I guess I'm asking you about strategy now, political strategy. Uh, Tim Hudak loses twice, arguably elections that were his for the losing. Mm -hmm. Same with John Tory. 
the liberals perpetually seem to be a party that manages to make themselves very unpopular on the cusp of an election, and yet they always manage to pull it out. And the general consensus often is that's the fault of the way the Tories have run their provincial campaigns. Regardless of how well you may or may not run your individual riding, Mm -hmm. that the party can't seem to get enough traction to unseat what has been for three successive elections a not terribly popular liberal government. Mm -hmm. From your perspective as as not just the youngest MP, but somebody who's been deeply interested in politics and, and, and watched what has happened, what needs to be different this time around for the Progressive Conservative Party to cross the Rubicon and uh, unseat uh, a Liberal Party that manages to hang on to power despite its its sometimes uh, deep unpopularity? Well, I think we're Patrick and, and the team are doing a great job of, of, of breaking out of the anti-narrative. And that's the curse sometimes of, of conservative politics is we can be um, anti. So we're, we know what we're against, but what are we for? That's sort of one of the things I've heard from swing voters when it comes to, all right, so you've told me why the liberals are bad. I know that. Now give me a good reason to vote for you. And we haven't always done a good job of that in, in previous elections of, of conversing with voters in a way that is positive. Uh, but I think with the release of our People's Guarantee last weekend, uh, I think we we have flipped that page. Um, there's no talk about chain gangs. There's no talk about uh, cutting 100,000 jobs because we recognize that the importance of, of good management and good government um, means that having, having a government that works for the people, not the insiders, uh, is going to be one that talks about issues that matter to Ontarians. And the reality is, I think when you look at our further cuts to hydro costs, $1.9 billion investment in mental health, uh, you know, 15,000 long-term care facilities, um, 22.5% tax, tax cut, those are issues that are positive. Those are issues that people can say, I'm not voting just against Kathleen Wynne and the Ontario Liberals, although they've given me a, a lot of good reasons to do so. Um, I'm also voting for a party that understands that I'm treading water just to keep my head above water. Uh, and this party will do whatever it can to stop the scandals, waste, and mismanagement at Queen's Park and work for me and my family. So I think that's the message that we're going to be able to get out. We're, we're not going to be just not the liberals. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the progressive conservatives. Is it, How much of that identity of the progressive conservatives does does your party now need to reclaim? Uh, and I and I ask the question, I guess, in the larger context in which we live, in which conservative slash right of center politics, wrongly or rightly, is now also has this baggage of, is it like Trump? Are, are we going to see in Canada that kind of populism? Um, uh, how important <laughs> is it for the conservatives, whether it's you just in this riding or the party generally to say no, this is what we are as a party. This is what we stand for. This is what we're going to do, um, as opposed to maybe embracing the kind of thing that we've seen in the United States or even, you know, sometimes in, in, in other areas of this country. No, I think it's very, very different from, from what we're seeing uh, south of the border. Canadian politics is, is much more diverse. It's much more... Um, uh, has people from a wide variety of backgrounds. We really are a multi, uh, a melting pot type of uh, society, and and 
that's reflected also in, in the Progressive Conservative Party if you look at uh, who we have as, as candidates across the, country, uh, across the province. If you look at who uh, our leader has been reaching out to, reaching out to new Canadians, reaching out to uh, communities that traditionally have not voted Conservative, uh, and, and talking about things that unite us rather than you know, the divisive issues that liberals would love to talk about to distract from their, their mismanagement over the past uh, 14 years. I think um, our, our Conservative Party has a, has, a, has a view of good government that speaks to those values of faith, family, hard work, um, that whether you're a new Canadian or you've been here for many generations, um, those are values you can get behind. You understand the important, importance of, of opportunity, of, 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 of freedom, of personal responsibility, and of uh, compassion. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes the dialogue has been lost in results. We always talk about results as conservatives, not always about intentions, but our intentions are to help improve the lives of Ontarians, of Canadians, of, of society. And I think uh, Patrick has done a good job of talking about intentions and that intention of, uh, of, of having an Ontario where everyone can prosper. You had uh, recently a town hall issue on uh, the opioid crisis. And I thought it was interesting because it's, it, it, it is maybe the public health issue of our, of our time in mental health. And those two overlap. I mean, if there's a Venn yeah, diagram absolutely. between opioid addiction and mental health, there's going to be the, the big overlap in the middle. Um, and it's it's uh, it's been described to me in my conversation with public health officials and experts in addictions and, and drugs and police that Niagara, sort of the Niagara-Hamilton area, is kind of ground zero for Ontario in terms mm -hmm. of uh, the number of users, the number of people who who need help. From your perspective and what you've learned to date. What does the provincial government need to do, or what should it do, mm -hmm. um, to sort of mitigate the extent of this crisis mm -hmm. and uh, get either the, the help that people need to them in a, in a better way, or do something about the supply of uh, opioids, yeah. illegal or, or, or legal? So, so, I mean, there's a lot of, I could get into policy because I, I think there's so many policy initiatives that we've even put forward as, uh, as a party that... Uh, I think could make a good start. For example, uh, Michael Harris, MPP for Kitchener, Waterloo, Conestoga, put forward a bill that would ban illegal pill presses where people are churning out thousands and thousands of pills at a time. Uh, we should be looking at uh, having naloxone kits, you know, in every arena, in every um, public office, in every service Ontario, in every uh, government building because the reality is people are overdosing in places like Smithville and Beamsville and, and not just the, 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 the Wellens and the Thorolds of the world. Yeah. Um, we should be looking at things like uh, awareness. For example, uh, Lisa McLeod put forward a private member's bill that would ensure the government spent at least 10% of its revenues uh, or its advertising revenues, which is $57 million, so $5.7 million on uh, making people aware about opioid abuse and, and what that looks like. Uh, we should be doing more to, uh, I've met with pharmacists about this, to, to make sure that we're prescribing uh, proper amounts of opioids. Some Right now there's, there's huge prescription problems where people can walk out with 60, 70, 80 pills, uh, but they need seven right uh, type of thing. I, I got my wisdom teeth pulled out, for example, and they, they, you know, it was just ibuprofen, but they gave me this like, huge bottle of ibu big yeah, ibuprofens yeah. that I didn't need. 
so having those those conversations about uh, reasonable um, reasonable prescriptions, uh, I think there's a lot of conversations and, and and things that can be done around awareness and and. I think the government could be doing a lot more to start that conversation within LINs and within uh, within local health networks and 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 also uh, municipalities. And I think the education one is just really one of the biggest uh, biggest things. I I'm sure you've heard of a pill parties, right? Where yep. yeah. So so these these pill parties, a lot of people have no idea that they could be potentially um, consuming. A drug that can kill them fentanyl fentanyl yeah. right or carfentanil now yep. which is hitting hitting the streets so uh having awareness uh, did you ever see that one little video where you're driving along it's a, this guy he's driving around along and then he looks at his phone for a second and then it's like <laughs> yes yeah wasn't that effective yeah like really really effective there can be you could that that like hit me i remember because I, I i have friends who, who text and drive and i remember showing them that and be like guys you will die and having that conversation to the point where people, instead of real thinking it's just a fun Friday night out, recognize that they could not come home from that. Alcohol consumption is, is down among youth. They don't consume like they did. Drunking and driving is, is way, way down. Mm -hmm. But yet consumption of opioids, again, the mental health aspect is definitely part of that. But a lot of it is just a lack of awareness on, on what it can do uh, and a lack of awareness on, on the deadliness of, of the opioid. Are, are you well placed? Certainly, we have done stories at the Standard about uh, young, your de your age demographic again, 19, 20, 21 year old, goes to Toronto for a night out, experiments as young people are wont to do, but they experiment with fentanyl and they they don't make it through the night. Mm -hmm. Are are you well placed because you are part of that demographic? Do you think, and knowing some of the things you've learned in the last year, to be able to say to them what what you just said, which is this could kill you. That that I'm not I'm not an old man saying hey kids get off my lawn mm -hmm. I'm I'm your demographic I'm interested in the things you know I, I live your life to a degree um, to a degree, to a degree. Yeah. well I mean yeah being elected <laughs> official say, yeah. makes makes you somewhat of an outlier but but do you think just because of your age and where you where kind of where you're at in life that maybe you can carry that argument in a way that well, some I, of your your older colleagues uh, can't I hope so right and that's why I thought it was so important to have that 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 roundtable and and open the conversation and. And start discussing it because um, it can't be a generational divide on this issue. Uh, opioid users aren't just young people; they're also doctors and lawyers and mm -hmm. and, and and construction workers and mechanics and nurses and you know. Um, but young people are not aware of the risks to the same extent, I think. And I hope that we can break some of that stigma around talking about drug use because it it does happen. And it's, everyone thinks it's not their child, but it could be your child. So the best way to go about that, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that um, health units across the province have really woken up to it. It's sort of out there, the crisis is out there in the ether, but it is on our street. So trying to bring that conversation forward, like, like I've been doing my best to do, uh, is something I'll, I want to keep, keep doing. Do we need a more effective either provincial or national strategy? Oh, from, from 100%. Your, yeah. We need a we need a So, my private members bill on uh, which is is tabled last Monday uh, and we debated the 14th is on palliative care. We have 341 beds in the province. We need to have 1300 for our population. So, that's addressing gaps in care, but the, if you don't have a strategy on something like um, 
the opioid crisis as well. And, and the government has been waking up a little bit on this on this file, but if you don't have a strategy, I mean, you can sit there and complain about gaps in care and gaps in service mm -hmm. all day long, but what are you gonna do to actually address it if you have no strategy? So I think there, there should definitely be a strategy, uh, and uh, I hope the government will take one up as soon as possible. This isn't a partisan issue, right? This is, this is something where we should be working together to save lives. Is this your first private member's bill, the palliative yeah. care? So tell me about it. Tell okay. me, tell me, tell me just. It's, sure, I can because, give you a website as well. Okay. Uh, OntarioPalliativeCare.ca. It's uh, Bill 82, the Compassionate Care Act. Uh, 182, sorry, Bill 182. Um, it was really brought to my attention uh, by visiting a lot of hospices across the province, but McNally House, especially here in Grimsby, which is an incredible community organization. Uh, and it's endorsed by the Ontario Medical Association, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, uh, uh, Registered, no, Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Physicians. So uh, it essentially addresses the fact that right now, if you live in the north or in Haldimand or in Windsor, like the chances of you getting good hospice palliative care are slim. There's huge gaps in care. Like I said, the biggest reason is um, because we just don't have enough beds, 341 hospice beds in the province, and we're supposed to have 1,300. Uh, so this was something that was really brought to my attention uh, when, I was, when I was doing some touring on this in Ottawa and in that area. And when I started to look at what the, the government's been doing on this, um, it's, it hasn't been a lot. It's been a real patchwork of care. Uh, there's not a lot of, no one knows where palliative care dollars go. It's just kind of in a general kitty. Uh, there's very little education. If you graduate from nursing school, uh, up until recently, I believe you got one hour on palliative care. Uh, some areas that's up now, I know Western's three hours you'll, you'll get, but this is something that everyone's being impacted by, right? Uh, you will die. <laughs> and yeah. I will die. Yeah, the party and, will end at some point. Yeah, so, so do you want to die um, in pain or do you want to have a medical assistant dying or do you want to have a meaningful uh, end of life experience surrounded by family and friends and loved ones where uh, your pain is mitigated, uh, where you're in a, in a, a, a dignified environment that uh, recognizes your worth and, and values you and, and enables you to have the best end of life experience possible. Um, to me, I think it's, it's, a, it's a question of human dignity and human worth, right? Should, should the province be funding hospice? I've done a number of stories so, with hospice in St. Catharines, and they always have to do, and I'm sure McNally House is the same, they have to do significant fundraising every year just to keep their doors open because they don't get funding mm -hmm. like hospitals, for instance. And then on top of that, though, there's the question of how many health care dollars do we have? So this is actually, listen, the cost to have someone in an acute care bed in a hospital is between $1,500 and $2,500, depending on what kind of bed you're in and what sort of care you're getting. Do you know what the cost for a hospital palliative care bed is? No. 400 We have people who are dying in the hospitals that should not be in hospitals. They should be in palliative care. They should be in hospice care. And it sounds very blunt and cold, and, and I, I don't mean it to, but... It would save the system money, and it would mean that people die a good death. It, it's about as perfect a solution mm -hmm. as you can get, really. Uh, huge cost savings and, and a huge, um, you know, it's hard to say better outcomes when you're talking about death. But right. But you're, 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 ta you're talking about the, the, the quality of their life the at the end. Quality of life. Yeah. Qual much improved quality of life. So do I think we should have improved funding? Absolutely. 
Do, do you um, ha- do you have a sense yet of, or does the party have a sense as to what that funding would be or what it would look like? So my, well, or is it is it addressed so is it addressed little, in your bill? Or so is your my, bill? my bill, the reason it, we don't we can't put a number uh, a number figure on it is because there's so few statistics surrounding palliative care, and that's really what my bill is about. It's about creating a framework that we can actually address this in. So the 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 minister will have to present a report to the legislature um, uh, after six months of, of consulting with people across the province because right now you don't know that we, it's very difficult to find the numbers on healthcare dollars, on healthcare spend, on, on uh, the educational measures. A lot of it I've managed to amalgamate through visiting various uh, organizations and meeting with various professionals during my consultations for this bill. Uh, but we need to have a, a central um, framework that people can work within, and then we can start answering those types of questions. You said earlier <coughs> you don't know if you want to do politics forever. Um, when you look at But this, I know I want to help people forever. Yes. <laughs> so when you look at, at where you're at now, you're, you're heading into only your second year. You're going to be slammed right into a, a provincial election. When you look kind of beyond 2018, and we'll say for the sake of argument, you, you maintain your seat, you win the next election, what do you see for the future of, of Sam Wusterhoff? Do you want to stay in provincial politics? Do you have other ambitions in terms of where you would like to serve? Mm-hmm. I think I will go where I f- believe I can make the most amount of positive impact. Um, and... I have the best job in the world as it is. I'm incredibly happy and content with how I'm able to serve my community and 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 uh, speak to issues that matter and whether it's palliative care or opioid, being able to see some of the impact of, of um, being there. At the same time, I recognize that opportunities arise at various points. Look, two years ago, I didn't know I would be here. Mm-hmm. Who knows what two years will bring? Um, if we're in government, you have all sorts of different options that hypothetically open up where you can make some impact. If you're back in opposition, that again takes a cause, uh, takes takes some uh, re-examining. Um, the future is uncertain, but I know that it will be great. <laughs> okay. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank this you. Fantastic. That was thank a lot you. of fun. It was great. No worries. See, I'm not scared. Oh, <laughs> oh,